What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of reading, writing, and art. First, I'll be talking with author Michelle Grimes about her experience with her readers. Then, we'll have author Kristen Crow in the studio to chat a bit about her writing journey. After that, we'll talk with Scott and Callie Flocks about how to help children to be artists. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about kids, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Magid Fast for Ramadan, and we'll learn a little about history. But before all that, let's step into my world. Rachel's As a librarian, one of the things I work with my students to develop is critical thinking. The skills involved with critical thinking are complex, but one of the things we teach as we help students to learn to critically express and write arguments is how to identify and avoid common reasoning fallacies. I'm sure most of us have studied these kinds of logical fallacies at one time or another in some kind of English or philosophy class. We know fallacies like hasty generalizations, where there is too little evidence cited to support an argument, or the ad hominem attack, where it's the person, not the argument, that is being addressed. The slippery slope presents an argument where one action inevitably leads to another action, or the red herring makes an argument that distracts from the main argument. There are lots of logical fallacies out there, and each one represents a flaw in reasoning. Now, while it can be fun to name them, knowing what they're called is really less important than knowing that when they are present, an argument is less likely to make sense. As a writer, we know that writing that contains logical fallacies is likely to be weaker writing, and what we want in writing is strength. So we really work with our students to understand how to present these arguments without fallacies and with full and valid information. Writing without fallacies is critical, but understanding logical fallacies is also important for readers. We are better at assessing the truths of advertisements or political arguments if we know how logical fallacies might be used, and if we recognize that they can discredit and weaken an argument. Sadly, today in the news and online discourse, there are lots of great examples of logical fallacies. But these offer great opportunities for us to talk with our kids about how arguments are being presented and help them to develop their own critical reading and writing skills. So here at Rachel's World, we think that maybe it's time to brush up on your understanding of logical fallacies so you can help your kids develop one of those essential skills that will help them to be critical thinkers. Rachel's World Books are bridges that connect authors and their readers. Authors often draw from their own lives to create stories that then connect with other readers' experiences. Today, we are talking with one such author, Michelle Grimes. Her most recent book that just came out is called Pidge Takes the Stage. Welcome to the show, Michelle. 
Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I am just delighted to bring you on the show and have you share your experience with our listeners because you have such a unique background and then a unique journey to becoming mm-hmm. an author. And I love sharing with my listeners all of these journeys of the different ways people become authors. It just helps us appreciate their books and their work more, but then also helps us help our children understand that everybody's journey to where they want to be is is a little bit different. And that's okay and exciting. So to start out, tell us a little bit about your background in history. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas, We uh, since I was one. I was actually born in Florida. At the time, my dad was uh, still in the Navy. So but then we came to Dallas, Dallas when I was one, because he um, then my father, Roger, had a uh, career with the Dallas Cowboys. So I grew up and there's five siblings and the three of us girls were born like during his four years of service after his Naval Academy career, but before he was a cab- Dallas Cowboy. And so I was the middle of that three. And that's really where I come from being the, uh, a middle child. Then there was when we, you know, he started his career in Dallas. Six years later, my mom, my parents had a, my brother and another sister. So I grew up with the big family and um, none of our, uh, my parents were from Cincinnati. So we didn't know anybody in Dallas. So we really had to, you know, build our own life in Dallas and make friends and, and, you know, we loved the city and, and we did. And it was, um, from after from so I went all the way through high school in Dallas and then I went to school in Washington DC for undergrad and I was a history major honestly really because I don't think I knew what I was going to be do, do any <laughs> of us know what we're going to be at that time no, in our lives no <laughs> you know it's a little crazy now cuz I my kids are applying ones in college and the one that's applying right now you have to put down what you what you want to be what school you want to apply to and, <laughs> that's rough and I'm like I guess make it up if you can't think of it. I don't know. So anyway, it was funny because my dad would be like, I'm just curious who hires history majors. But um, anyhow, I, it was a, um, I was a history major. And then I, and then I worked for um, Bush 41's administration in DC and then went back to law school in DC. So I stayed in DC for eight years and then it made sense to come back to Dallas after that, took the bar here practice law at a big firm. Um, I love law and the study of law, did not love the day-to-day practice of law in a big um, tort litigation situation. And so then I did a sports job for a year and then I started having kids. So I was home raising kids. I journaled a lot. And so that's probably where my writing really started, a lot of journaling and had this idea of a nonfiction piece I wanted to write. And so I just thought, I'm going to, you know, I need to do something for myself, not just be a mom all the time. And SMU we have here has a great continuing ed writing program. So I enrolled in that and it was creative writing. And so then I fell in love with creative writing. And so then I drafted a novel, which I have, as a draft and it's been revised a few times and and I plan to get to it hopefully soon. But then one day, I mean, it literally, it happened. I was at the kitchen table and the story of pitch came to me, the children's story. So I just started writing it and I thought, gosh, how do I do this now? Well, then I studied under a children's author separately 
and really understood, you know, how children books work. I mean, we've read them all, but, you know, and that, and that's where it led down to where is pitch. And so I was in my forties, you know? And so I tell kids, you know, things change. And, um, I just had this passion and, you know, how to find, put all the pieces together. And, um, that's where I ended up. So I wish I was still here in Dallas, married with three kids, one in college and two teenagers at home. That is such an amazing journey. And I, I think a lot of people would look at that and say, oh, she went from being a lawyer to a children's book author. But the reality to me is it sounds like fundamentally in all your experiences growing up and through your, your college years and through your career years that that stories are kind of fundamental. I mean, I, I think about sports mm-hmm. stories and I'm, I'm sure, you know, your dad would come home and tell you great stories about what happened. And then you go on and do history and history is all about stories and yeah and and being a lawyer I mean is essentially all about people telling their stories right and and whether you know you have to judge whether the facts are true or not but right it's about telling stories and even a political campaign is all about telling stories right so I have a a sister in Dallas who's um, political who's on our on our city council and so yeah that was real interesting watching that yeah. watching her campaign. Oh. Yeah, so I don't I don't think it's as far away as people think it is, right? That this right, is just right. it's, it's about telling stories and that essence of just bringing those stories out. I love particularly with your your children's books and with your character Pidge that you draw on this experience of of being in a middle child in a big family and and pull those things from your real life, but then of course kind of twist it and make it fictional, right? So how right. do you do that as an author? How do you make that kind of twist where you take something from real life and use it as inspiration to then take and make a, a completely fictional kind of story? I think it's more natural than we think because I think when we all, if when we're all in a room and something happens and then we leave and we go tell the story, we all tell it differently, right? And so, you know, I don't, I would never want to hurt anyone's feelings or, so I take bits and pieces and then add to them. I probably would say, you know, that I'm comfortable with using references to certain family members or friends, but I would tweak it and really develop more of a make up a story. And I think when it comes down to it, it really is accumulation of my life and everything that's happened to me. I really think that that sense of it's all accumulation of everything that's happened to you is so delightful because I think that's true of most storytellers. I think that they use they use their stories to kind of work through um, emotions or ideas mm-hmm. or something or and maybe, you know, have it turn out differently than it did when when it actually happened or just takes it in a slightly different direction. And that that becomes such a powerful thing for writers because they're creating something that's for them. But then you're also creating something that's for the rest of the world and getting it out there. So tell us a little bit about that experience as as you you got these stories and you sent them out into the world to to, yep. to be to be their own stories. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's scary, you know, you read reviews, you know, some are great, some aren't as great. 
the best thing about kids, I love they're honest, right? Yes. You know, <laughs> and they'll tell you if they don't like something. I think you just let it go. I mean, I, I, I get to the point where I'm done. The novel, you know, that I, I am going to start working back on that too is is pretty personal and it'll probably be harder to let go of that. But I think you get to that point where you do, you just, you're ready to share it. And, and it is really fun sharing these stories with kids and also them asking me about my real life. Like, did that really happen to you? Or, and letting them know that, yes, I went through the same things you guys are going through. And I know it's not easy. That shared experience between author and reader, I just think is so delightful. One of the things you do quite frequently is go out into schools and talk with mm-hmm. kids in schools. So tell us a little bit about that experience. What kind of reception have you found to your books and your stories um, with working with kids schools. in schools? Yeah. Great. So generally, I um, when I visit schools, I'll present to K through second because they're at obviously a different level and then third and fourth or third through fifth. And that way, K through second is, is more reading the stories, right? And then making it fun. And I and I and I ask them, what did you get this lesson? Did you find a lesson here? And you know, sometimes the younger kids, you you'd be surprised though. You know, they they really they're really paying attention. I think some of the third through fifth is maybe like, oh gosh, do we have to go to this picture book? <laughs> but I I talk to them about the lessons and how deep they are, and also about how to write a story. And I, and I get a little bit more into that with the older kids about like I was talking the story elements and what makes up a story. And that back to the lesson of unspectacular preparation equals spectacular results that, you know, they may not love writing and and that's okay. I mean, they may not be an author one day, published author, but it's part of life and it's how you move forward. And when you apply to college, that's all they're seeing is what you wrote. And and so I try to get them to understand that at least work at it and try to get better, even if it's a subject you don't like. And of course, you know, you're, you may excel in math, but that's okay. Just work hard. And that, and that's, that's what I really try to instill in them. And it's hard. I mean, some days I don't feel like getting up. I mean, you know, <laughs> don't right? we all, we don't all we have all. those days. Yeah, adults, adults do feel that way. Yes, definitely. <laughs> But gosh, and then I'll be like, oh, gosh, I got to drive 30 minutes to school. And then I get there. And and I mean, I just got a huge package of letters from one of the schools. And it's so great. I mean, I mean, that's my favorite thing, really. And that is one of my great ways I'm able to give back to literacy is, you know, I don't charge for school visits. And I'll go to any schools and been able to, you know, donate to underprivileged schools books and work with literacy organizations. And that's really important to me. You know, Michelle, that is one of the things that I do love about you and your your passion here is that you're not just producing great stories, but you also have a passion for literacy and encouraging mm-hmm. kids to share that passion in the ways you described that they're going to help them no matter what they do in the future. So right. as, as we close our conversation today, maybe tell us a little bit about why is it that you are passionate about literacy and why is it do you think that that children should also be passionate about literacy? Well, I think the just the ability to read and write is so important, you know, and I was fortunate to grow up with books, go to school, learn that. Not at, you know, a lot of households, 
I mean, don't can't even afford the books. The parents both are working. I mean, so I get it. The parents are exhausted. They don't have time to read to the kids at night, but it's so developmental. And so we've got to get, and I work with programs here in Dallas, you know, extra programs that can help with literacy. I'll tell you really where I became really inspired about 10 years ago. I started attending an event in Dallas, the Barbara Bush Foundation, obviously Miss Bush, who's, you know, we just lost was passionate about literacy. That was her cause. And they did a celebration of reading event. They do every year and they have four to five authors come in and they'll read from their book or they may just talk about why they wrote it. Not children, you know, uh, we have one children's author, but then adult authors. I mean, Jody Picoult, you know, you name it, different authors. And I'll tell you that opened my eyes, Miss Bush and that program to, the literacy issue we have in this world and in our country. I agree with you totally. And I, I'm so grateful for the Bushes for being advocates for that. And they have for a very long time. And I'm so glad you're joining in that. One of the things with your books, and in particular on your website, you have a Pidge Pledge. So to sum up, tell us what that Pidge Pledge is. The pitch promise I ask kids to do is just say, I'll read five extra minutes a day. I'll read to my sister this afternoon. Very simple things. Like I tell them, if you read a couple minutes extra a day, keep a piece of paper by your bed and write, just write, write, write. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about if it's grammatically correct, all that, that can be fixed later. Just write, get your thoughts, get your feelings down and try to get them into that habit of a book and a piece of paper should be by their bed daily. That's perfect. And kids can go on and make that promise and adults too. So let's all take a note from your experience and make our own pitch promise and do a little bit of something with some type of literacy today for our kids or for ourselves, because as you say, it is so, so important for everything. Thank you so much, Michelle. This has been a joy and an honor. Thank you. Now, it's story time with Magid Fast for Ramadan by Mary Matthews, reviewed here by Alyssa Crabb. I'm really excited to come and talk today to you about this book I just read called Magid Fasts for Ramadan. Now, if you don't know what Ramadan is, Ramadan is a Muslim holiday where people fast from sun up until sundown for an entire month. And to me, that's really impressive because I'm a religious person and I try and fast every month and I only fast from probably, you know, sun up to dinner time, not even sundown. And that can be extremely difficult for me. So reading this book gave me a whole nother level of respect for this religion and what they accomplish. So the book is by Mary Matthews and essentially it's about a little boy named Magid and he's seven and he really wants to be, in his words, an obedient Muslim and fast this entire period of Ramadan. Now, obviously his parents have different ideas and they think that because he's seven, he is not old enough to fast and Magid doesn't like that. And so throughout the book, it's kind of his story of how he wants to try to be this obedient Muslim and how he tries to kind of evade his parents' ideas to be able to do that. So he'll do things like take his lunch and feed it to the geese and, you know, pretend he's eating breakfast when he's not actually. It's a great book and it ends with such a positive feeling about family and obedience and honesty. But I don't want to tell you exactly what happens because I want you to go and read the book yourself. 
Now, the reasons I would suggest this book to you are, first of all, because it does create a sense of diversity and it does create, you know, a unique experience for you as a reader that maybe you wouldn't get in another way. So I spent some time in Singapore and one of the things that I loved there was how open the people are to religion in general and how open they are to each other for their differences. So there's a few holidays that are celebrated there, some national holidays, and I just want to give you kind of a taste of holidays that everybody gets off and that everybody celebrates regardless of their religion. So they have Visak Day, which is Buddhism's celebration of the life of Buddha. They have Good Friday, which is Judaism's celebration of Christ. Um, Christmas and Christianity. Diwali, which is Hinduism's celebration of light. And Hari Raya, which is the end of Ramadan or this celebration that this book is talking about. Now, everyone celebrating this created such a sense of camaraderie and community that I don't think we have here. And I think for me personally, I think it's that maybe we're just not as exposed in the U.S. to these religions like they are over there. And so I would recommend this book because in the words of this quote that I really like, it says, each time we read a good piece of literature, we're changed by the experience and we see the world in a new way. And so if you want to have a diverse experience and you want to understand this religion and you want to be able to, you know, create the sense of community, there's nothing better than to read about it and to put yourself into the shoes of somebody that does experience it. And so that's a big reason I would recommend this book. And another reason is I, I just think it's so beautiful the way it expresses the Muslim religion. I was very touched by it. And I, I left with just such a feeling of, of wow, these, these people are so good. And I think that's something that's really missing in American culture to a certain degree. I guess overall, I would recommend this book to you. And I would say if you're missing out on diversity in your reading, that you should read it because it'll create a unique experience for you. As a book is created, every author takes their own unique journey. Today, we're in studio visiting with picture book author Kristen Crow to discover just what her journey was. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. Kristen, I am so very pleased to have you here today and to introduce you to my listening audience I think that as we talk with authors, one of the things that really interests me and that I like to share with my listeners is how were you prepared to become an author? What did you do to get to this point in in your life, both formally and informally? What steps did you take? Well, interestingly enough, I wanted to be an author from the time I was a very small child. Um, When I was about five years old, I started to... um, make little books, and I would take pieces of paper and fold them in half and um, write little rhyming stories and illustrate them. And I did this over and over again. And, you know, I had two awesome parents who always encouraged me, and, you know, they never said anything like, you know, uh, writing is a really difficult um, career, and not many people get published. You should think about other things. They just treated me like I wanted to be an author, so that's what I was going to be. And, and so that was a great way to start off. 
Um, and so I just dreamed of writing books and decided I was going to figure out how to do it. I studied children's literature um, in English at BYU, and I also attended dozens of writing conferences, um, which are plentiful in Utah. There are so many fantastic writing conferences that I highly recommend that people attend if they are interested in writing for children. And I did all of that, and, you know, I think the writing conferences were probably the most beneficial thing that I did to prepare myself, because it's one thing to learn about writing, you know, in an English class or a children's literature class, but it's another thing to get with other writers and learn, you know, what's happening in the market right now, what editors want to see, you know, what a manuscript looks like. And so I learned all of those things at the conferences that I attended. That's such great advice. I think this sense of going to things and being a part of the production process for all different kinds of writers is really engaging and helps us to see that there's a lot of time and effort that goes into honing your craft. So as you went to these conferences and did all these things, what were the next steps? What did you did you get a manuscript accepted right off and you were published just immediately or or how long did it take? Well, what happened was I went to a class taught by Rick Walton, who is sadly no longer with us. He was the guru of picture books in Utah for many, many years. And I was told that he was the guy that I needed to to see. And so when I showed up to the conference, they told me, oh, his, his class has been, you know, booked for months and months, and you won't be able to get in. And so I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? So I just, on this whim, I just decided I'm just going to go into the class and just sit there, and if they kick me out, so be it. But I'm just going to give it a shot. So I just went into his class that I was told I could not be in. And, you know, knowing Rick the way I do now, uh, it's funny to think of him ever kicking someone out of his class. He, The more the merrier for him. And so he, you know, welcomed me and treated me so well. And from there, he gave me the name of his agent. And... I kind of want to go back a little bit because I, I had a terrible experience at first. I met with an agent who actually laughed at my work. Um, I went in to meet with her in a private session, and she looked at my manuscript, and she shook her head and said, why do they send these people to me? And I was devastated. And this was a visiting agent at the conference. And when I went back to Rick, then he gave me the name of his agent. He said, she's wrong. She's wrong. Here's my agent. Give her a shot. And so I sent her three different manuscripts, I think. And in a few months, she called me and said she wanted to represent me. So that's kind of how it, it, it works. It's a lot of networking, meeting people, learning the process, and um, getting your work in front of an agent. I would highly recommend finding an agent, not submitting directly to a publisher. I love hearing about each author's different journey. Thank you for sharing with us your journey and and those moments that were devastating and those moments that were joyful. I, I really enjoy hearing about those contexts. It just goes to show how different each author is and how different each journey is as you move forward. 
As you move forward into this journey after being a published author for quite some time, what are you looking forward to in the future? You know, I think there's this this gnawing urge that that I've always had and I know other writers have to constantly keep creating and challenging ourselves. And I definitely have that in me. Um, So, you know, I've thought about writing some screenplays, some more screenplays and trying to sell them. Um, I'm still working on my novels. And I'm always, always writing picture books. I think that's, that's really where my heart is. And I think I will constantly have, you know, probably 10 or 15 halfway written picture book manuscripts on my laptop that I'm bouncing back and forth. So I I think that I'm always dreaming of doing something new, but I'm always going to fall back on my picture books. That seems to me to be the truth of most creative people, that they always have something next. So it's great to hear of what the future might hold for you. I do hope that you continue creating those great picture books as you move forward. Let's talk a little bit about how you see your readers. So what is it that you hope your readers will take from your books when you send them out into the world and let the readers take over? What is that transition like for you? And what do you hope your readers will take from your books? Oh, I hope they will clap their hands and ask to have the story read again, and that they will dance and that they will read the words and you know, I have a little grandson now, and he is almost two, and he, one of his first words is boom, because that time the swamp has a refrain, splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom, and we'll, we'll say bim, bam, and he'll say boom, and, you know, that's because he learned that refrain from Bedtime at the Swamp, and I love hearing from parents. I don't often hear from my readers because they're little, (laughs) but I hear from parents, and that's such um, a wonderful thing. I recently heard from a father who emailed me from my website, and he said that he and his daughter would go around and sing songs to Skeleton Cat. They had a, a little tune they had created to the book, and I wrote back and said, oh, I would love to hear that, and so he sent me a video clip of him and his daughter reading Skeleton Cat with a little musical flair to it. And I just was so touched. And, you know, I've been able to hear from some schools that have done performances with Bedtime at the Swamp, um, children who have played xylophones to the rhythm, a little performance, all kinds of different interpretations of the text. And that is so fun for me to see what schools and and children and parents are doing with the text of the books. It's just one of the greatest joys of my life. That interaction with readers is just so delightful, and it makes the books come to life. And I think truly with your books in particular, it it makes them come to life in a very unique way. So I love to see that you are influencing readers But who influences you? What are some of those other writers or other works that you find to be uh, inspirational to your own work? Anytime I read a book that makes me laugh, I think that inspires me. Or anytime I have an emotional reaction to the text of a book, that inspires me. 
just the other day I read The Day the Crayons Quit, and just reading the funny text of that book with the letters and, and the different things the crayons are saying, I mean, just the cleverness of that book is inspirational to me. And I think there are a lot of books that do that. There is the book with no pictures, and that is a recent book, and you know, even though it doesn't have pictures, the text, um, I'm an author, I write the, the words, and the text is so playful and makes kids laugh out loud. And I've seen kids respond that way, and I want my books to do that. So I'm always looking for new picture books that, that have an innovative way that they, you know, make children respond somehow. Oh, and I, I have to mention, of course, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus by Mo Willems. That book and the way it creates an automatic interaction with the child reader. You know, you have a character that walks out and basically looks at the child and talks to them, and the child shouts things back to the book. I mean, that is is really what you want your book to do. And so I love that book as well. And then one of my favorite books of all time is The Monster at the End of the Book, where Grover is using... He's, you know, building a brick wall. He is roping the pages down, and every time the child turns the page, they are busting down the wall or breaking the ropes apart. This is true innovation in picture book writing, and that definitely inspires me. I am inspired by many of those titles that you mentioned as well. They are wonderful examples of picture books and wonderful examples of the craft. And I'm I'm so grateful that you mentioned those. And I hope that all our listeners out there will now go check out your books and find their own inspiration in your own particular picture books, because there is much to be found there. So thank you so much, Kristen, for visiting with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Kristen Crow is a children's book author, and it has been my pleasure to have her on the show today. Next, let's step into the classroom and learn something new as we expand our literacy horizons and take a glimpse into history. Around the World in 80 Days was written by Jules Verne and published on January 30th, 1873. At the time, the methods of transportation around the world were mainly trains and ocean steamers. This is how protagonist Phileas Fogg was able to make his journey around the world in 80 days. And it also happens to be how a young woman by the name of Elizabeth Cochrane made it around the world in 72. History can be stranger than fiction in the classroom. Elizabeth Cochrane was a reporter who pioneered new techniques in the field of investigative journalism. Her pen name was Nellie Bly, and she wasn't afraid to make her mark on the world. In one instance, she went undercover in an insane asylum to report on the mistreatment of patients. In another, she traveled to Mexico to write an expose on the corrupt government. However, it is her journey of fictional proportions that has given her the most fame. In 1888, while working for the New York World, Bly suggested to her editor that they should attempt to replicate the journey of Phileas Fogg from Jules Verne's novel. At first, her editor suggested that the journey was a man's journey, and that Nellie wouldn't be able to accomplish it. However, she convinced him to let her make the journey herself. She left in November of 1889 on a steamship headed to London. After that, her journey took her to France to meet with Jules Verne himself. 
Unbeknownst to Nellie, another New York newspaper decided that they would send their own representative to beat her in her journey. They chose Elizabeth Bislin to race her and sent her west in the opposite direction that Nellie was taking. During her travels, Nellie encountered a leper colony, bought a monkey, and rode a single car train on her way back to New York. In the end, she beat Bisland by four and a half days and wrote a book called Around the World in 72 Days about it. Although her record wouldn't last for long as transportation technology continued to develop, Nellie Bly had proven to the world that Jules Verne's novel was more factual than previously thought. The current record for how quickly a human can circle the globe is 92 minutes, but that's only because of the International Space Station. In a plane, the record is just under three days. It's amazing how much technology has changed since the Victorian era. Thanks for joining me in the classroom. Sometimes it's all we can do to stop our children from drawing on the walls. But other times we can't even convince them to put pencil to paper. Today, we're in studio with Scott and Callie Flocks, both talented artists and teachers who work with children in the classroom to help them become artists. But understanding their experience as parents and how they help their own children discover their artistic talents is very insightful. So let's start with you, Callie. How did you get your children to be artists? You know, there's two areas you need to look at if you want to have these things as part of your family, both what happens inside your home as well as what happens in the community and in the schools. And making a deliberate plan in both areas is really important. So for us and our family, we always took our kids with us to work. So my children went to teach dance with me, and they went to uh, draw with Scott. And and we're both educators, and we had our children go with us out into the community and creating those things. And then in our home, we made an explicit attempt to always be doing things at home and to be sure that at our dinner table conversations, that the conversations were rich and full, and that we took the time to listen to their artistic expressions. Living with a family artfully, it isn't always just about creative creating the artworks. It's about creating conversation that allow people to have individual ideas, individual opinions, and a, a time and a framework to express their voice. So listening and validating their experiences people is what helps them, our children, become artists. That that's an interesting point, and I think that you created the environment. So, Scott, how do you how do you find that that environment impacted your kids? Tell us a little bit about what they're doing today in their own artful expressions. Well, when they were young, I mean, I used to draw with them all the time, so it was a interactive way of me doing something constructive with the kids. Uh, we'd build stuff with constructs. I mean, that whole level of Part to whole, hold heart, you know, hold apart, doing puzzles, doing things together that elicited brain development that made it easy to be an artist. Then when they showed an inclination to do something, if they wanted to play the guitar, I'd get them a guitar if they wanted it, which was their own. It wasn't, we didn't share stuff. I got them their own instruments that they were in charge of, you know, and responsible for. Uh, one of the kids got a drum set right off. 
another kid got a good really good guitar and he just took off on that because it was a good instrument and i played it too so you know it was just part of what we did it wasn't separate of now we're going to do art today it was just part of what we did a lot of the books we read were about abstract thinking and artistic subjects and um if we watch a movie we watch a lot of artistic movies uh, about abstract thinking and different ways of looking at things. It was way more than just specific art forms. Yeah, I think that's really important that particularly with most art forms, there's lots of tools that you need to do them. And that's one of the things my parents were really great at. If we showed an inclination or an interest, they would go out and get the tools to provide for us to be able to engage with that. But that develops its own challenges, right? There's cost considerations and, and, you know, if you buy something like an expensive guitar, you want kids to stick with it. So, Callie, how how do you address some of those kinds of tensions that that come with these needed tools to do some of these artistic endeavors? Well, it's all about prioritizing. And we have parents come to us all the time and say, well, I don't know if they're really going to stick with this, so I'm just getting this cheap guitar. You've just guaranteed they won't stick with it. Um, if pe- children don't have some uh, the opportunity to be successful, they're not going to continue. And the better quality tools and materials they have, the more successful they are. Well, we're both educators. This isn't. It ha- it has taken serious commitment in order to make those financial outlays, and that comes with what we value. And people would say, well, okay, so. You're educators. You don't make a ton of money. Don't you want your children to be able to make a living and and make more money? Why would you want them to be artists? We want them to think artfully. We want them to be sensitive citizens. We want them to have a broad understanding of the world around them. So our son, who's an engineer, when he talks about how his arts have changed him, his ability to communicate complicated engineering ideas in a room of clients is uh, superior to most of his colleagues because he got an English literature minor. And he can write, first of all, so his presentations are better. His, he has an understanding of visual art, so his maps and his graphics and his designs, a few extra tweaks, and he'll have clients say, oh, my gosh, this is so much more clear for me to understand. He has an aesthetic way of doing his engineering. And that's the sensitivity that we were hoping to create for our children, so no matter what they did, they, they had those skills and tools to apply to their world. You know, it... It takes a lot of money to buy those nice instruments. That's where your question came from, and to be committed to those nice materials. But don't we want our children to know that they're worth that? And the value that you place on the skills that they build, we could spend our money on Xboxes and and other kinds of things. There's always something to spend your money on. But if you really know what you value, you'll find a way. And I think that's true. I've, I've found that to be true in my own life, that the, the best quality that you can afford is is the best, particularly for these artistic forms, because you're right. If you buy the cheap stuff, you've already set them up for failure. And that's that is one of the main challenges of all of this. But what are what is one of the other challenges, Scott, that you found in raising your family in this kind of artful way that that you found a way to address that you can share with our audience? I just found that without it myself, I would have never gotten through school. I've always taught guitar lessons, so it gave me a livelihood, you know, on top of teaching. Um, When I developed my own novels and novel studies in my classroom structure, it's always done through an artist's eyes. So there's no separation between the arts and what I do 
with my kids. And it's made me a better teacher. It's made the kids a much better students. So the value of it goes far beyond just playing a guitar or um, whatever it happens to be, a drummer or whatever, you know. And, and it also teaches you how to practice. It teaches you how to set high goals. Um, I mean, I play a lot of complicated guitar music that most people wouldn't even try because I keep trying to get better. Visual arts, too. Uh, you know, our artists, kids are always doing weird it's a progression. You know, they started with very tight line things, and now they're into more abstract things. The literature, you know, the literature they read, too. I mean, it, it permeates everything they do. So it's not about art. It's about thinking and a lifestyle that happens to integrate into what they do. That's a really good point because I think – these kind of artful thinking and the way we approach the world integrates into our whole lives. So, Callie, what other kinds of blessings or benefits have you seen for your family in approaching your raising of your children in this way? We have ways of communicating that give me insights into my children that I wouldn't have any other way. Um, my son who lives in California came in town last weekend and, Mom, I have a new song for you. And he'd chosen this song that he came home to play for me. And that discussion about why he chose this song and what it meant to him, the poetry in it was beautiful. I got an understanding and an insight into my son that I would have never gotten through normal, uh, traditional kinds of conversations. When my friends come to me and say, oh, how do you do this? They think bringing the arts in their lives is making their children practice their instruments for 30 minutes a day. They think it's about the structure and the schedule. And it isn't. That's how I almost destroyed my relationship with my daughter was when I sat down and tried to make her practice. It's the artful way that we build relationships, and that's the richness of why we want the arts in our homes and the arts in our lives. That makes a lot of sense. Scott, if you could leave our audience with one thought today, what would it be? The arts teach you to think abstractly, out of the box, problem solve, all the practical things that employers are looking for nowadays, but you do it in a way where it's fun and tangible to them, and it makes them grow as people as well. That's wonderful. Callie, what about you? What would you like our audience to remember today? What we're trying to raise is citizens in a country that are, can self-actualize and know who they are and know what their voice is. And once people know what their voice is, they know how to interact with their community and build, connect to their community in meaningful ways and build strong communities and societies. What we want is a peaceful world with understanding where individuals can know who they are and know who other people are through empathy. And the arts are one of the best ways to create empathy. And in a family... That's the kind of people that I want to be around, and that's the kind of society I want to create. Me too. I agree with you totally, Callie. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today, Scott and Callie. Scott and Callie Flocks are both talented artists, and it certainly looks like their kids are following in their footsteps. Now, before we leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Today, I'm talking with Matt and Nathan of the Orem Public Library about some resources you might not know the library has to offer. I am in 
the studio today with some awesome librarians, as I am so grateful to always have awesome librarians in the studio. But let's chat a little bit today about libraries and and your guys' connection to libraries. I, I know that you're really into makerspaces and bringing new technologies into libraries, but I think one of the things that people don't realize is this is kind of like nothing new for us. This connects to everything we've yeah. already done as librarians. So how does that work? How does how does this not make anything really new for libraries, but just connects to what we already do? Yeah. I mean, libraries have been instrumental in, in embracing um, new forms of technology. Um, you know, uh, public libraries were among the first institutions to uh, provide public internet access, you know, something that we just take for granted now. Apart from the fact that they've always been a meeting place for community members to try out new ideas. Um, one of the areas that I work in at the library is uh, in programming and outreach. So um, one thing that a lot of people don't have easy access to is uh, live performance of music, so theater, true. art, you know, and so we we bring those into the, into the library, you know. Um, there's a lot of grant opportunities out there for, for public libraries. We're able to bring in, you know, big um, authors and um, musicians. Um, we're excited to have Brandon Sanderson coming to visit us this, uh, this fall. Um, so, you know, those are, those are just one ways um, apart from our, you know, physical collections. Yeah. I, I really like that sense of a place for the arts, right? A place for the community to gather and, and participate in that. And I you know, Matt, you're a musician. And so that probably makes you happy, right? To have this place that's outside of maybe some of the mainstream, like the concert halls or things that we might think, but that the library can be this place where we can gather as a community and engage in these things is, is really cool. Absolutely. And uh, we don't just have books about composition and song structure and how to write and produce and market your music. We now have a place where people can come and actually make that music. Last night we had uh, two different groups, like high school kids, who were in there uh, doing some songwriting. So uh, two of the kids are regulars who come in all the time. And then uh, these other three kids I'd never seen before. So word must be getting out. But uh, <laughs> Yeah. Way, way to bring new people into the library. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I loved having, you know, uh, two new groups in the community doing their thing, writing their music, writing their lyrics, uh, working on the piano. And we just got uh, the sound booth installed, and we're going to be installing a green screen wall next. Very so cool. you can do audio, video, anything you want to do to create. So, you could, I mean, you could write an album and make your video at your local library. It's just awesome. You know, and that makes me think about something that I find really great about libraries is they're just really safe places, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, I think when I was growing up, um, you know, I was a music geek and all this kind of stuff, but there wasn't a lot of safe places for us to gather, right, in that kind of venue. Um, you know, we often got bullied a lot because of because we were those <laughs> geeks. You know, we yeah. were those kinds yeah. of geeks, right? And and so I love it that now that libraries are kind of opening the doors to that, and particularly for children and teens, I think it's amazing that there's these safe places that these five teens can come yeah. and create what they love together in, in a safe environment that they're not going to be judged or they're not going to be bullied, yeah. and, and then they have the stuff they need to do it. And a free <laughs> yeah. sound booth. Yeah, and a free, exactly. uh, free yeah. sound booth. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you don't yeah. have to pay for studio time. You don't have to pay for an engineer. You don't have to pay for anything. It's just, you know available for the community to come in and enjoy. Yeah. yeah. And that just makes it that much more safe, right? Uh, because absolutely. Because it's for everybody. Yep. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a, yeah. such a neat insight. Yeah. When we, when we think about that, though, 
I mean, how do you guys go about that? How do you go about thinking about new things that you want, right? Because I mean, I think <laughs> that's one of the things sometimes I think about as a librarian. I think, oh, as librarians, we could do everything. You know, we could just do that's everything, true. but we can't. We can't do everything. So how do we kind of pare it down, and how do we how do we make those huh. strategic decisions to make sure that we're serving our community to the best of our abilities and finding these great new technologies and great new services that connect to our traditional technologies yeah. and services, but then make it something more. I, I get that is a deep mm-hmm. question. I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's following your passion and then finding other people who have, you know, a diverse passion as well. Um, you know, for, for me, like, I loved reading and I loved going to the library as a kid. And as a result, that made me want to write and, you know, find other people who liked to write. And uh, so I think, you know, one of the great things about a library, um, as its collection expands, you start gathering other people, you know, patrons and staff members with diverse passions and interests. Um, I... um, you know, just working at the Orem Library and being surrounded by such a large uh, public collection of like movies has made me much more interested in film and learning about it. And then having, you know, great media librarians um, at, at our library has, uh, you know, taught me more about that. So I think it's just, you know, um, following your passion and, and finding other people who are excited about it as well. That's one of the things I tell people. I say, I became a librarian because I love everything and I'm yeah. interested in everything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that as librarians, that's kind of our nature, right? Yeah. You know, we do, we do have these individual passions of things that we love, but it's just like, well, we could be really interested in that. We could be really <laughs> interested in that. And so the yeah. only place we can actually be passionate about everything in the whole wide world is yeah. a library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's true. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, libraries are, are, are dynamic. You know, they change with the yeah. times and, and the needs of the community. Um, and so, you know, I think I think we'll see it evolve. Yeah. And if there's if there's a particular you know community need, um, you know, we'll we'll reach out and meet that. And at the same time, if there's things we're investing our resources in that that you know could be better invested elsewhere, yeah. you know, so we're we're dynamic. Yeah, I mean, how have you seen that, Matt? How have you seen that kind of dynamic nature of libraries? Uh, well, the library is really different than when I was growing up. <laughs> yes. um, I, I have said it before, but I just – I never had a place like that where I could have gone and recorded or edited a movie together um, when I was young. You know, that equipment, that software just wasn't available. Um, but it's it's been really cool to see the change and patrons uh, – our library patrons have been very vocal about what – kind of things they'd like to see, what projects they're interested yeah, in. That's true. And they let us know. And if there's something that we don't have that we could do, then we do it. I mean, uh, they were some of the people who came up with the idea – well, not the idea, but the need for the green screen and for the recording booth because we just – we couldn't do it in that little space we were in. Yeah. Um, so we – yeah, just like the library, we're – Evolving and expanding, which which is so exciting because <laughs> yeah. that's one of the things I love about being a librarian and being involved in libraries because it just expands our world yeah. and our community's world in such a fundamental way. You wouldn't think a librarian would be the cutting edge, no, you know? <laughs> we are. <laughs> right. We we I mean I I think a lot of people get that outdated view of librarians, right? Uh-huh. But 
in in all honesty, you're right. Yeah. We are the cutting edge. We are the awesome cutting edge of the future. That's right. That's we, right. we will say that together. That's right. When the Proud. kids, when they're asking me to help them model their Fortnite character to 3D print, you're just like, and, to, yes. and I don't know what they're talking about. That's right. That's yes, cutting we edge. Are cutting edge. We, we love it. Well, thank you, you cutting edge librarians, for chatting with us you're today. Welcome. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're welcome. I want to thank Matt and Nathan for talking with me around the librarian's table. We've had a wonderful show today. First, we talked with author Michelle Grimes about the joy she gets from interacting with readers. Then Kristen Crow shared her personal journey to becoming a writer. Our last guests were Callie and Scott Flocks, two artists with suggestions on how to help your kids become artists themselves. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.